This is lecture number six on Essential Buddhism taught by Joseph Goldstein at the Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado on August 2nd, 1974. We are all searching out some kind of happiness in our lives. But this search for happiness is somewhat limited by our view of what kinds of happiness there are, what kind of happiness exists. Because we don't have a very broad view of the possibilities for happiness in life, we tend to restrict our striving to a certain very narrow area. If we understand the whole range of possibilities, all the different kinds of happiness possible, then we can, then we can experience life in a very full and rich and extraordinarily happy way. Because we'll be, experience, we'll be experiencing the whole range of joy and happiness possible to the mind. There are seven kinds of happiness. The first being the happiness of sense pleasure. Sense pleasure being the first of the kinds of happiness possible to us. We experience pleasant sights, very beautiful sights, and beautiful sound, the joy of music. Beautiful smells and beautiful taste and very pleasant touch sensations on the body. All these pleasurable feelings bring to the mind a certain happiness. And it's a very nice state to enjoy. It gives us a great deal of delight, these kinds of sensual, sensual pleasures, sensual happiness. These ha this happiness of sensual pleasure is very nice while it lasts, but it is rather impermanent. Right? We cannot experience for very long or for very continuously these delights of the five senses in the human world. They're always changing. As they come, they're very enjoyable, and they bring to the mind a great deal of happiness. But they come and go rather quickly. So it's just the first of the kinds of happiness possible. There are, there are superior kinds of pleasure, of joy possible to us. The second kind of happiness after these sense pleasures of the human realm are the pleasures of the celestial or heaven worlds. There are worlds of sense pleasure. Heaven, heavenly, heavenly sense realms, which are created by the force of our good karma. Not that some being up in the sky directs different people to different, to different planes of existence, but rather these planes of existence are created by our own minds. 
by the force of our own common. And the result of very many wholesome minds, the result of a lot of giving, non-greed, a lot of generosity, the result of cultivating the mind which has followed the, the moral precepts, non-hatred, non-delusion, the result of those kinds of minds, the, the karmic result, is the creation and rebirth in the heavens of sense pleasure. And there are six of these heavenly worlds. And the descriptions of them are exceedingly beautiful. Beings have bodies of light. No aches, no pains, no tensions. Nothing unpleasant at all. On all sides there's jeweled palaces and pleasure groves and thousands of celestial nymphs. <laughs> all, the, all the delights of the senses with, with nothing unpleasant impinging. Right? As the result of one's good karma, what comes back to oneself is all pleasant. Right? Heavenly music, divine sounds, and, and beautiful sights, and always pleasant feelings in the body. No, no painful feelings at all. To understand somewhat how this, how this world is created by karma, there's a story my teacher told of Queen Elizabeth coming to India. One, one year she made a, a journey to India to visit. She landed in Calcutta, which is not a very clean city. It's rather dirty, lot of poverty, rather unpleasant to all the senses. But when Queen Elizabeth came, what the, the government had done, very much as the, the Buddhist father, when, when he wanted to go out into the city, they cleaned up the route, you know, which he was going to follow. And they painted all the houses and they got all the, the sick people away. And they put flowers all over and lighted incense. So in the midst of this rather unpleasant city, all the input that came to this one person was pleasant. Right? All she saw were very pleasant sights. And she heard, she heard beautiful music and beautiful smells from the incense and flowers. And they took her to a very fine place and gave her the best food possible. In the midst of all the, all the unpleasantness, a world was created of happiness, of joy, of pleasure, due, due to her own good karma coming to fruition. Right? We experience pleasant things or unpleasant things as karmic results. The heaven worlds are very much that kind of world of all pleasant things created by the force of our own, of our own minds the force of our own skillful actions, creates these worlds and our rebirth into them. And there are six of these heavenly worlds corresponding both to the force of, of purification involved and also according to one's desires. There are worlds filled with heavenly musicians. They're just beings who are, who are so delighted by the, by the beauty of sound. There's a, whole, there's a whole heavenly realm of these beings. 
realms where, where the visual beauty is very predominant. There are worlds of these sense, sense delights, where there are beings who delight, who delight in mental creations, right? who delight in the intellectual, intellectual beauty. If we're good, we get what we want. Right? All, all our desires can be fulfilled through the force of our, of our purification, of our skillful states of mind. These are the second kinds of happiness. Right? The happiness of sense, sense heavens. They last a long time. Rebirth in one of these worlds lasts for thousands and thousands of, of human years. So in that sense, they're more satisfactory than the, than the human sense pleasure delights, right, which are rather impermanent. And the pleasures themselves are much finer. It's on a much finer level. Great deal of luminosity in those worlds. But also they are impermanent. The force of our karma creates the world and determines our rebirth in them, and we enjoy, and we enjoy, and we enjoy, and the karma is exhausted, and again we're back on the wheel. So they d it does not last forever. It's a nice vacation. There is a superior kind of happiness to the happiness of these, of these sense heavens, and that is the happiness of highly concentrated minds, the happiness of jhana, or absorption in the object, the happiness of samadhi. That kind of happiness is a non-sensual happiness. It does not have to do with, with sense objects, with the delight in the different objects which come through the senses. It's a happiness of absorption of mind. It's a very great bliss, this bliss of samadhi. Much, much higher, much, much more rich and, and integrated than the bliss of sense pleasure, this bliss of concentration. The consciousness involved, the mind involved in that kind of happiness is Brahma consciousness. Right? That kind of mind which creates and determines rebirth in the Brahma worlds, which are above these heavens of the sense pleasures. It comes through the development of concentration, this ecstasy of samadhi. This, this union with Brahma, or the experience of Brahma, the Brahma realms, are possible as human beings. There are many beings who experience that state of mind. And there are many levels of Brahma consciousness involving some very exalted and expanded states of consciousness. States of cosmic or universal mind, universal consciousness. Union with Brahma, 
becoming one with God. All these are expressions of that kind of happiness. There are four qualities of mind which are very predominant in this kind of level of consciousness. The first is the quality of loving-kindness. Beings who have attained to this level of happiness, this high level of concentration of samadhi, their minds are filled with universal loving-kindness, right? wishing well for all beings, not with discrimination and not with separation, but sending out thoughts of love to all beings everywhere in the universe. That's the first quality of the Brahmic mind. These four qualities are called the abodes of Brahma, these four mental factors. Loving-kindness, compassion, universal compassion for the suffering of all beings. Sympathetic joy, which means finding happiness and delight in the joy and happiness of others. Feeling happy when something good happens to someone else. Taking that kind of joy from the happiness and well-being of other people. That's a very beautiful quality of mind to have, and it's very highly cultivated in this third kind of happiness, the happiness of of Brahmic consciousness, of samadhi. And the fourth, the fourth abode of Brahma is equanimity, the mind that stays balanced, the mind that is unaffected by the flow of phenomena, by the ups and downs, very equanimous mind. These four qualities together are characteristic of beings on that plane of existence and are characteristic of of human beings who develop their minds to that plane, right, as humans. A lot of the traditions in the West of the Creator God are said to have to do with some kind of connection with this Brahma, Brahma plane. Right? There are beings there. There are, there are very powerful cosmic minds in these planes of existence. And the notion of, of a creator God comes from some kind of contact with that, with that plane of existence. There are said to be 20 or 21 of these Brahmic planes, depending upon the strength of the samadhi, the strength of concentration. And they last for a very long time, eons and eons of time, millions and millions and millions of years, as the result of of one's karma, the result of having achieved that kind of concentration as a human being, creates that world and results in rebirth in it. It lasts for a very, very long time, and in fact, many beings in those planes 
think themselves to be permanent. But in fact, they too are on the wheel. And when that karma is exhausted, again there's rebirth on all the other planes. So it is a very superior kind of happiness. It is a, it is a non-sensual bliss and ecstasy of mind filled with beautiful and noble qualities, a very expansive consciousness. All of these kinds of happiness are available and possible to everyone. There is a path to cultivate, to, to experience all of these kinds, the, the happiness of sense pleasure as a human, the celestial realms, the realms of Brahma. They are all impermanent. There is a kind of happiness which is superior even to this cosmic consciousness type. And that is the happiness of insight. It is called vipassana happiness. The joy which comes from very clear insight into the nature of things. And it occurs at a certain stage of insight along this path to enlightenment. And this stage of insight is when the mind is seeing clearly the arising and passing away moment to moment of each object. What happens in this stage of insight is that there is an overwhelming luminosity and brightness of mind. Consciousness begins to shine in that state. Very much as if you take a piece of of crystal, glass, and you shine it, polish it, it has becomes very, very clear and very shiny. The mind, the mind reaches that same state of luminosity and clarity in this stage of insight happiness, seeing at every moment with perfect precision the arising and passing away of knowing and the object. Along with this clarity and precision of the mind comes a lot of light, and many people experience light coming out of their bodies. And the mind and body is filled with great rapture and happiness and joy. The mindfulness is effortless, the, the concentration is effortless at that time. It's a kind of happiness which we have never experienced before up till that moment. It's an overwhelming feeling of clarity, of lightness, of rapture, of happiness. It's the taste of freedom. It's the taste of enlightenment. Because it is not involved with the delight in any particular object, but rather the happiness which comes from a clear vision of the mind-body process. It's a taste of freedom. This kind of insight happiness, the happiness of, of clear vision, is so extraordinary that a very common experience at that stage of insight is that people think they're enlightened. It's so, it's so different, so calm, so tranquil, so clear, so bright that that is taken to be the, the end, taken to be liberation. In fact, when my teacher was training in Burma, 
he got to this stage of insight, and he sat for 12 hours. He sat down to meditate, and 12 hours later he got up. It was such an extraordinary happiness. And everybody around thought, oh, he finally made it. You know, the big enlightenment. And he himself thought so. And he goes running off to his teacher to tell him what had happened. And of course the teacher knew. He, he knew it as a certain stage of insight, right? part, part of the development, but not the end. So he said, just go back and continue, you know, rising and falling. <laughs> there is more to do after it. But it is, a very, it is a very extraordinary kind of happiness which comes along the path. And it comes to everyone. Everybody who cultivates this path of insight, of mindfulness, goes through these stages. Insight, or vipassana happiness, it's the fourth kind of happiness. And it's far superior even to the happiness of Brahmic level consciousness. It's a greater, a greater type of happiness. It's a happiness pointing to freedom. The next three kinds of happiness have to do with the experience of nirvana, the experience of enlightenment. And in distinguishing between this, these following three types of experience, it will give you some idea of the whole process of enlightenment and how it affects our flow of consciousness. The first of these nirvanic-type experiences is something called path consciousness. It's the experience of nirvana And the kind of mind involved is called path consciousness. And the function of that path consciousness is to uproot defilement, to eradicate certain defilements from the mind so they do not arise again. There are ten defilements or ten fetters of mind. At this first path consciousness, Three of them are completely uprooted. And the first three which are, are belief in rites and rituals as, as a means for attaining enlightenment, doubt about the path, and the view of self. Right? This belief in an I, in an ego, in me or mine. This belief in self, which is at the, the core, the center, of our, of our wandering in samsara, all evolving about this concept of I. That first moment of experience of nirvana uproots these defilements. It's like a bolt of lightning. And they do not arise again in the mind. Immediately following this moment of path consciousness is something called fruition consciousness, which is also the experience of nirvana, but which does not have this uprooting function, but rather a pacifying one, right? a tranquilizing one. Somebody who has experienced the path moment immediately experiences a few of these moments of fruition which means the mind is in the nibbanic state, 
resting in that state. A person with very highly developed samadhi, concentration, can go into this fruition state at will. In other words, somebody who has experienced that first moment of path and fruition, and also who has developed a high degree of concentration, can sit down and at will go into this nirvanic fruition state for a predetermined amount of time. In fact, there was one, one extraordinarily developed student in India who not only had reached high stages of enlightenment, but all the levels of samadhi. She was coming back from Burma to India. She was an older woman and had, had heart trouble. She didn't particularly like to fly an airplane. She got into the plane, and she went into this nibbanic state, this fruition state. And she was with her daughter. Of course, she was just sitting perfectly motionless, and the stewardess comes up you know, and asks the daughter if something's wrong with the mother. The daughter, she's resting, you know, the highest rest. These are the things that are possible for the mind, right? Not just for some people, they're potentials, they're possibilities for all of us to develop. There's this path consciousness and fruition consciousness. There are four moments of path, and each one of them eliminates or uproots one or several of the remaining defilements. So what happens? You walk the path of insight, you practice mindfulness, you go through the stages of insight, including that stage of vipassana happiness. You walk the path, and there comes the experience of this path in fruition, the experience of nirvana. Right? The first three fetters are eliminated. From that first moment on, you are destined towards full enlightenment. From then on, your direction is determined. You can only be going towards more and more light. Because the, the belief in self has been eradicated. The thing, that, that idea which has kept us spinning around and around for so long is uprooted. So even though there are many defilements remaining, there is still sense desire and ill will and restlessness and conceit, many other fetters remaining, it has undercut the strength of them by removing our identification with them through the idea of self. From then on, all of these phenomena are seen as impersonal. So they become gradually weaker and weaker and weaker. One is inevitably destined for enlightenment. So you reach that first level, but there's still more to do. It's only the, it's only the beginning. Again, the same path has to be walked, the same practice of moment-to-moment -moment mindfulness, watching the rising falling and the thoughts and the sensations, moment-to-moment -moment cultivating awareness and mindfulness. And again, you go through all the stages of insight, right? reaching the second path consciousness and fruition, which eliminates further defilements. And it's the same process over again through the experience of the fourth path, which is which is full enlightenment. So what we are doing right now is the entire show. There are no secret mystical teachings which come later. Right? From beginning to end, it is the practice of mindfulness. 
which leads through all these stages of enlightenment. And it is the very same practice. The very same mindfulness which is being developed right now is that which leads from where we are to the, to the place of full enlightenment. This moment-to-moment -moment awareness of what's happening without clinging, without condemning, without identifying with it develops insight into the process. Nirvana is considered to be the highest happiness in that it is a putting down of the burden of the mind-body process. What's happening in the mind-body is a continual flood, a continual rush, flow of phenomena, not lasting even a moment. Very tiresome, very burdensome, very empty. There is no one there. It is just empty phenomena rolling on. It's as if we had to carry a very heavy burden up a very high mountain. And we're really struggling to keep going. And there's no way to stop. We have to keep going. Right? And we're staggering under this load. Finally, we reach the top and we're able to put the burden down. What a feeling of relief, of peace, of rest. The experience of nirvana is very like that putting down of the burden. An overwhelming release and relief and silence and peace. Nirvana is the highest happiness which is possible to all of us. It's an experience which is there for us to have if the path is cultivated. This path and fruition consciousness are the fifth and sixth kinds of happiness. The seventh kind of happiness is called parinibbana. Parinibbana. And that is that state when a fully enlightened being dies. Right? No longer subject to the process of rebirth. Nirvana without this, the groups of the mind-body remaining. Okay, path and fruition experiences is the experience of Nirvana with the mind-body groups remaining. We experience it in life. Parinirvana is the experience of Nirvana at the death of a fully enlightened being where there is no rebirth and where the groups of mind-body existence no longer remain. It is the final end of suffering, the final release. It's interesting, in the Buddhist time, people used to come and offer food and arms and robes to him and to the whole order of monks. And there were certain moments in his life when these gifts assumed a very overwhelming force because of what was about to happen. And one of these moments was when an Indian lady offered a bowl of milk rice to him after, after these many years of ascetic practices and he, he had become very weak. This lady came and offered this bowl of milk rice 
which he took and gained some strength, after which he sat down under the tree and experienced the enlightenment, experienced Buddhahood. So the force of that gift became exceedingly powerful. The merit involved in that act of giving was very extraordinary. And it's said that that woman is going to have heavenly rebirths for you know, many, many eons of time just as a result of that act of giving. It was at such, a, such an important moment in the development, in the life of the Buddha. There was one other moment which had equal force. And that was the moment of the person giving the last meal to the Buddha before he died, which in fact turned out to be poisoned food unknowingly. It was unknowingly given. As a result of which, the Buddha died. And before he died, the Buddha cautioned the monks and the, and the people around from blaming that man, because he said, in fact, the act of, of giving that food, of offering that last meal to the Buddha, had this incredible force of purity and merit behind it because in fact it became the cause of the Buddha's attainment of the highest happiness right the experience the the happiness of parinirvana the putting down of this burden of mind and body the final end of suffering for a lot of us it's hard to to understand that as the highest happiness, because we think, oh, there's no longer going to be any me, right? No more movies, no more pizza, no more enjoyments. It doesn't sound like a very happy state at all. <laughs> but in fact, that's, that whole misunderstanding revolves about the illusion that there is someone there in the first place. There is no one there who is being annihilated or coming to an end. Rather, it is the cessation of suffering only, the ending of the, of the process of suffering, of the ending of the burden, the putting down of the burden. In the whole process, from beginning to end, there is no I and no self. Right? There is no one who suffers and no one who becomes enlightened. There is the state of suffering and the state of freedom. Parinirvana being the highest freedom, the highest release. All these kinds of happiness, ranging from the, from the sensual pleasures which we enjoy as human beings, through the celestial realms and the Brahmic realms, and the happiness of, of wisdom, of insight, the happiness of nirvana, they're all laid out before us. They are open, they are open to our, our experience if we walk along the path. And if we aim for the highest happiness, all the others come along the way. If we aim for the happiness of enlightenment, of freedom, along the path to that freedom, 
comes all kinds of sense pleasures, all kinds of Brahmic consciousness, the ecstasy of samadhi. Along the path to enlightenment comes the happiness of vipassana, of insight, and all the different experiences of nirvana, of path and fruition. Aiming for the highest, we experience all of them. And we experience all of them for as long as we want to. So we should not limit ourselves to, to striving for some inferior kind of happiness which does not last very long anyway. Enlightenment is there, and the path to it is there. And all along the path come all these kinds of happiness. It's a very beautiful vision of the possibilities for our mind. The possibilities of what we can experience as we become more and more free of greed and of hatred and delusion. All the kinds of happiness possible as we cultivate awareness and wakefulness and mindfulness. All these realms of happiness open up to us. And it's a very beautiful trip. Any questions? spoke about the Hari Nirvana where the fully enlightened one he dies. And I thought one of the three marks of existence, and that may be the catch phrase right there, existence, is um, impermanence. And therefore it would seem that even the concept or the idea of a fully enlightened being would still be subject to the, this thing of impermanence. Okay. At as long as, for example, after the Buddha's enlightenment, he went around for 45 years teaching. Right? In that span of time between his enlightenment and his death, his mind-body process was subject to that same law of impermanence as everyone else. The elements in his body were arising and passing away, the elements of his mind, his consciousness. When you hear Rinpoche speak about tantric Buddhism, do you get the feeling that that there is an end to that. I get the feeling that, to, that there isn't, that one continually is reborn and keeps dealing with the energies. There, there is definitely an end. Right? Nirvana is the cessation of that process. Beings at different levels of evolution, and some at very high levels, may choose out of compassion to, to keep coming back and and serving others, right? But that's part of their karma. That's not the end. Right, right. In other words, the Buddha spent eons and eons of time motivated by compassion to develop all the qualities of Buddhahood. Right? It took, it took an incredibly long period of time and an immense effort, right? involving much suffering for himself, this continual round of rebirth. But he was so motivated 
by compassion and the wish to help other people out of their suffering, that he, he chose to ignore his own suffering, right, for the attainment of this full and complete enlightenment of Buddhahood. Until it culminated in, in his last life, in which, he, in which he experienced that full <coughs> enlightenment, right? And the energy of which is still, it's still present in the world. We're here because of the Buddha's enlightenment. Now, it's an extraordinary, an extraordinary event which occurred, which, which is still reverberating. Right? But in, in the nirvanic state is the cessation of the process and parinirvana is like the fire going out. It's no, it, it's the ending of the process because there's no more feeding of it, right? It's when a fire goes out, if there's a fire and you don't feed it with fuel, it's going to burn up whatever fuel is there and then go out, right? The Buddha, after his enlightenment, was no longer feeding the fire, right? No more creation of karma. So the old karma played itself out. But there is no one there, right? No one who goes out at all. I was thinking that someone went out. I was wondering there there were like mental factors and energies which make up this notion of of somebody there or something right. there. They do not continue at, at the death of a fully enlightened being because there's no fuel for them. Where, where, where does it that's like asking. That is exactly like asking the question. When a fire goes out, where does it go? And people used to ask the Buddha that, and he said it's an inappropriate question. You know, the, the concept involved in that question is not appropriate to the situation, because it doesn't go anyplace, because it's not there. No, well, the experience as a human being is that one can go into that state, right, through the development of concentration of samadhi, but one does not remain there. You go into it for a certain period of time and experience that level of mind, and again, again come back. So you're not actually bored with this thing, are you? Sure. You a person who has attained that level as a human being, and if he has not lost it at the time of his death, <coughs> is reborn in those jhanic twins. Hmm. Can we ask you to compare the highest? I mean, I guess I believe in this <laughs> so, It has nothing to do with... But the universe is as it is, regardless of how we believe about it. And, and you don't have to believe me about it either. The whole idea of meditation is to have no preconception whatsoever and look, right? Don't believe in self, don't believe in not self. Just sit down and observe what's happening and let the Dharma unfold. Right? But it's interesting that if you are reborn there, then you would still be an individual, at least you would have consciousness. Right. Whereas, Better to experience it, and then we'll know. Right. What are the four abodes of Brahma? 
There are four mental qualities of loving-kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, meaning joy in the happiness of others, and equanimity. What's the difference between loving-kindness and compassion? Loving-kindness means that quality of wishing well for others. Right? Compassion is that quality of feeling for the sorrow and suffering of others. Then they're, they're obviously related, right? but they're different, they're different perspectives of mind. What was it that ordained or elicited those two critical gifts? The one uh, the it's interesting. The, one, the, the first one, this bowl of rice which was given just before the Buddha's enlightenment, the story goes that this woman had been praying to some tree god for a really long time to give birth to a child. Right? Finally she gave birth and she saw that there was this, this very emaciated monk sitting under this tree and she thought that, that the Buddha-to-be, the Bodhisattva, was in fact this tree god who had who had made possible the birth of her son. So in her mind, there was a completely uh, erroneous perception you know, of what it was all about. But the force of the gift remained. But it seems to me that, for myself, I would interpret it not as erroneous, but that that is precisely the way the world works. And people are always motivated by what they're motivated. Right, that's fine. And that there's much more significance in this for me then really, that, that to me is a crucial part of the whole story. Because just of looking at life leaves out that part of it. Like, mm -hmm. you weren't even going to go into that. And yet, to me, that's crucial. The, what, what sometimes is called synchronicity or whatever. And again, what was it that elicited in this whole universal interaction, this poison bowl, which, again, mm -hmm. Right. What was the story there? I, this was just an offering of food to the Buddha, which, which many people... And how come it was poisoned? It no just happened to be some... In, in the legends, there's no... Uh, no uh, it was, according to legends, which some people will be um, reactive to, it was some kind of, of rancid meat. Oh, I don't know. I don't know the reason. It just happened that that's that's what had been prepared. <coughs> you know. I, there's there's no there's no problem. You know, the the idea of wisdom and awareness and mindfulness is to see all of the relations of everything, not to not to divide or restrict. I'm going to look only at this and not at this. To see the whole picture, you know, and all the ways of interactions and interrelations. So I don't see I don't see it as a problem at all. The problem for me is that this whole structure leaves out a lot. The structure doesn't leave out a lot. I have been leaving out a lot, <laughs> you know, because there's much more. There's much more to the expression of the Dharma than is possible to to talk about in class, and much more than I know, right? But that, that's not that has nothing to do with the Dharma. <laughs> Um, are there people uh, that we can meet who are in, well, in some of these states? Sure. Can you name a few? <laughs>
Well, like a lot of the people we studied with in India have experienced have experienced different of these states. Yeah. But it does you know, they don't wear signs on their forehead. <laughs> you could be walking down the street next to an Arhan, next to a next, you could be walking next to a Buddha. And it's very likely you wouldn't have a clue. What yeah? is that? I because generally we see up to our own level of mind. Right? And it's very hard for us to see something, see a, a quality or feel for an experience which we have not had yet. And it's, it's not so important. You know? There are a lot of people who go, I- who go to India and go on the guru circuit, you know, meeting all the gurus, all the high beings. I'm not really sure of the value of that. Because what they're all saying is stop, sit down, and look at yourself. Right? They're not saying come and look at me. <laughs> because there's no value in it. You don't get enlightened. No other being can enlighten you. You're not even the Buddha. All he can do is show you what you have to do for yourself. Um, I recall hearing somewhere that, that being born in the human realm is, is in a way better than being born on one of, one of those realms. Mm-hmm. And there you won't try to attain enlightenment. Uh, you'll just be there. And that your rebirth, when you leave that realm, may be in a realm lower than the human realm, where you don't have the intelligence or whatever to attain upon the human realm is placed in the middle of that where you're, you're still suffering enough to be motivated no. and intelligent enough to That's partially correct. In the sense that the human world is a very good place precisely because there's this mixture of happiness and suffering, right? Which, which acts as a motivation. A person who has, been est- who has been established in the Dharma as a human and takes rebirth in the heavenly worlds can get enlightened from those planes without coming back to the human world. Because they have, they have cultivated very strong seeds of understanding as a human being. Right? So there are, many, there are many beings who have attained different stages of enlightenment, but not complete enlightenment, you know, who take rebirth either in the, the heaven worlds or the Brahma worlds, and continue their work from there, right? And, and get enlightened from those planes. But those who have not practiced Dharma before <coughs> tend, to, tend to dwell in the delight of them. Without, without wisdom, right. Right. Uh, the development of wisdom is essential. Right. 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 It's said that Maitreya, who is the n- who is the coming Buddha, right, is now hanging out in this in the fourth of the of the heavenly worlds. In that particular heavenly realm, it's said that there's a lot of Dharma being taught. Just what's happening here at Naropa. You know, people who have people who are sharing their own experiences of 
insight into the process. That's all. The Dharma means the law, or the way things are happening. I think, on three questions ago, what was meant by the gap is only my conception. However, the gap between the two gifts, I think what she meant was, where is the connection between the two people and the Buddha? Yes, I, I was focusing on that. Okay. It, it could be seen on many levels. One level is just the, uh, the circumstance involved in each moment, like that woman thinking she was giving you know, food to the tree god. But also, and most likely, there was some very strong karmic connection, right? Probably through many past lifetimes, which, which brought that situation to fruition at that moment. So there are definitely connections there. Things do not happen randomly or by chance, right? There's a play, another playwright other than either one of them. The playwright is their own past karma, right? Not some being up there writing the script, but the own long evolution of mind. Well, a consciousness that was up both of theirs, and yet not revealed totally to either one of them. Predestination? No. They had, they had different streams of consciousness, which over a long period of time had probably come together in very many ways, right? I find it to feel more comfortable ascribing the ordainment of things like that <coughs> to previous lives than to them being up there. Oh, don't, it, it doesn't matter. But it's, it's like saying, I don't want to uh, believe in a God up there who's pulling the strings mm. of all these puppets, but it's perfectly all right to think of past lives pulling present strings. So I can't do that. Oh, to no me, need. Something, life has a life of its own <laughs> that, that does these things. But it's, but it's one and the same. <laughs> you know, uh, let me reiterate again and again and again. The concepts about things do not matter at all. They why, the wife is having emphasis on, on not doing this concept, and there is no, there is no. No, the, emph the emphasis, the emphasis, which I am trying to, to, stress, is the fact of sitting and seeing what's happening. Right, that's all. You don't have to believe any of it, and none of it is necessary for enlightenment. There are people who come and practice who don't know a word of the theory, and couldn't care less. Right? And it does not matter. It's interesting. That's all. And for some people, it's motivating. If it's motivating, good. If it's not, forget it. You know? The important thing is the observation of the mind-body process with a silent mind, with a mind free of concept. And then it's all revealed. That's why one should never get into the place of arguing Dharma. It's ridiculous. No. Because the whole Dharma is to be experienced with a silent mind free of concept. Uh, and as you're talking, the, um, the word Dharma comes to me more, you see that like the law, the existence of the truth, comes more to um, 
need to mean something to do with the non-accidentalness of loss. Right. Which would sort of um, give an answer to the lady over there, I think, too, if, if that were possible to, uh, to see, then nothing would be accidental. Right. The bowl of rice, right. Right. Uh, nourishing, the bowl of rice, the poison, the, right. the meeting of somebody who accidentally uh, pushed you, or whatever, right. would be part of what I would imagine the mindfulness would, would give you insight into more of the non-accidentalness right. of, of everything and the perfect... Right. Exactly. The, the Dhamma is the law, and what the law means is that things do not happen accidentally, but there are reasons behind you know, everything that's happening on, on very many different levels. One, one word of uh, advice from the Buddha, direct. <laughs> he said there were four things which, when thought about, drove one crazy. Okay? And one of them is how karma unfolds. Right? How if you do something now, ten years later, it's going to come back as a stone falling on your head. Trying to trace those threads and connections are impossible for anything less than a Buddha mind. So he said it's not so fruitful to try and think about it. The other three things are not things we normally think very much about, but they are the the origin of the universe, right? Getting involved in this in this problem of how the universe came into being, and it's unthinkable, right? And thinking about it just it leads nowhere, and it drives one a bit crazy. And the third thing is the range of a mind in samadhi in jhana, the range of psychic power. For someone who has not experienced it, it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable what can be done through the power of mind. People have experienced it, and, and today there are many people in that level of mind, but for those who have not experienced it, it just can't be thought about. You know, how, how through the power of mind we can, we can create things or destroy things or, or manipulate, right? all through mental resolution. <coughs> Great power of mind there. And it's hard to understand until it's experienced. And the fourth is the power of the Buddha mind. Right? So extraordinary was the perfection of his mind that there's no way for us to, to really uh, uh, understand or comprehend the power and wisdom involved there. So we can appreciate the qualities, but trying to, to think about how he knew certain things is it's not so fruitful.
pure generosity, uh, one an offering of food to just a beggar on the street, another an, act, uh, an offering of food to somebody who looked like a beggar on the street but was really the Buddha. Why should one bring about uh, greater karma than the other since the same purity and generally both? Right. It's said that the purity of a gift is determined by three causes. The purity of the giver, the purity of the gift itself, and the purity of the receiver. That's what's said. So when a gift is given to somebody of such overwhelming purity of mind, such as the Buddha, his strength of mind greatly enhances the force of the giving. Right? And that's why it's, it's called, enlightened beings are called great fields of merit for the world. Right? Because when, when good deeds are done with them as the benefactor, it's like planting seeds in very fertile soil. One way of, one way of looking at it, you take some seed, Right? You take some good seed, and there's one field you have which is very rocky and stony, and you plant the seed, and then a medium field, and then a very fertile field. Out of that, the seed is the same. Right? The act of giving is the same. Out of that very stony field will come a very sparse crop. Out of the medium field will, will come a, a greater crop. Seed planted in a fertile field, a very abundant crop. The seed is the same, the act of giving is the same, but there are many causes involved in the, in the fruit which comes. This is what is said. You do not have to, you know. I think it's almost, uh, I don't know, a harmful concept. If it is not suitable, drop it. <laughs> you know, there is no point in cherishing opinions. Right? In, this, in the third patriarch, that, that pamphlet we handed out, that one very beautiful line, do not seek the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. Okay, we can believe whatever we want to believe without holding on to them, because the truth is beyond opinion. Right? The truth is to be experienced by each and every one of us. because what happens is that as one progresses along the path to the highest happiness and experiences all these, all these lesser happinesses, you experience it for as long as you take delight in it. But it's said that a being established in the Dharma, that who is destined for enlightenment, who has tasted nirvana, right? after some time, and it may be quite a long time, will consider even Brahmic consciousness to be undesirable. Right? Because he has insight into the 
inherent unsatisfactoriness of any conditioned existence whatsoever. Right? So he, he, he goes more and more towards freedom from it all. Right, right. Because the the kind of mind which is experiencing it is the insight mind. You know, whether it's of the human world or the celestial world or the Brahmic world, somebody who is who has cultivated the Dharma sees it all all with the, the mind of insight. Right? Which is the highest of the mundane happinesses. Yes. Can I ask a tiny question about guilt? Sure. Okay. Uh, everyone will eventually reach nirvana. Is that true? Um, I don't know. Of course, because we'll all eventually go through the lifetimes and it'll come. Uh, <laughs> if that happens, it'll be nice. You know? Like, I don't know if that's, if that's the way things are or not. Okay, then, well, if there's a balance in everything, will the poison that I gave to a Buddha, perhaps, will, and when I reach Nirvana, will I be able to, although I'm thinking too much of heaven, of being able to talk to him and reconciling everything, we will understand everything. Well, that's a concept? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the fruit of our, of our past karma is unfolding and it does not depend upon whether one again meets the, the uh, person we interacted with in the past or not. In any case, the karma is unfolding and it becomes exhausted and, and the cycle continues. Liberation comes from insight into the process, not from exhaustion of karma. There is no possible way of using up one's past karma because we all have an infinite amount, right? And it's a very common misconception that enlightenment means you use up your storehouse of karma and then you're free. It's impossible because, because there is an infinite amount that we have accumulated. Enlightenment comes from insight into the process of how things are happening, right? There, are, there was a being, many beings, but one particular story of a very violent person in the Buddhist time who had committed 999 murders, right? And he, he was after the, the next one <laughs> to round it out. And due to some reason or other, and I'm sure there was a reason, he came into contact with the Buddha, right? And the, the, the enlightenment potential in him was awakened. And he practiced, he became a monk, he became fully enlightened. Even after his enlightenment, a lot of his past karma kept coming back to him. As he'd walk through the villages, people would throw rocks at him. He was experiencing the result, but his mind was free. You know, there was no, there was no reaction, there was no creation of new karma anymore. So it's not that we have to use it all up. We have to penetrate into the nature, into the process. Miller 
nets like Wolfenau Common, and it appeared to be that he had to go through all that before he Maybe it was an exercise in mindfulness, you know, building houses. What? I, I, it's impossible to know, you know, unless Marple were here to ask. It seems what you were saying before is that the moment one gets into that speculation, it's going past things being just what they are. It's striving for some kind of leverage on it as a way of individually separating oneself from the process that we don't understand. It seems like the whole attempt at finding meaning, whether it's in the future or up above you know, the, uh, the right. puppeteer, or if the puppeteer is behind and below, it's the same mentality. It's that, that attempt to escape from just what is. It's incredibly seductive. But as one understands the process in the moment of arising and passing away, and how each moment conditions the next moment, it gives some understanding of the larger process also, out of the understanding of the moment. Right? I've got an observation that's a very immediate one. And this one cries, the way my wife describes it now, this is our third one, is that she said, I no longer take it personally. Yeah. And that seems like, like a key aspect to a much broader understanding for most of us. Right. Those are good words. Let's begin meditating. In the walking meditation, when thoughts come, we should be aware of the fact that the mind is thinking. Right? When you're doing the meditation in a, in a really suitable place without so many people around, what you will experience is that when the mindfulness is strong, and you're walking very mindfully and a thought comes, and the mindfulness goes to the thought, automatically the walking stops because you can't be mindful of two things at the same time and when that factor is very very strong in the mind in the moment if you are mindful of the thought you will not be walking which at that moment would be mechanical but in this situation it would be a little confusing because people would be stopping and bumping into one another so no need but simply when a thought comes in the walking be aware that the mind is thinking and then go back to the walking Right? Don't ignore it. Don't forget intentions. Right? Intention to stand up, intention to begin walking, intending to stop. Try to be aware of those signals in the mind which prompt our actions, which are the cause of our actions. Okay, we'll work for about 20 minutes or so. In the sitting practice also, be aware of whatever intentions may arise, whether it's the intention to straighten the back, or to swallow, or to shift the arms, or to open the eyes. All of these physical acts are preceded by a mental intention, and the intention should be noticed. Also in dealing with thoughts, in observing thoughts, the idea is to observe the fact of thinking without getting involved in what the thought is saying. Simply to be mindful of at that moment the thinking process is going on. There is no one behind the thought. The thought is the thinker. 
No need to identify with it or cling or condemn. Merely to observe the passing, the passing flow of the thought process. That way the mind stays very alert, very awake and very balanced. It's not disturbed by the different kinds of thoughts which may arise. No judging, no reacting, no commenting, no evaluating. Simply bear attention, mindfulness of what's happening in the moment. Okay, we'll start with the breathing, the rising, falling, or in out. Being aware of sensations in the body as they become predominant, the flow of sensations, thoughts, intentions. Each as they become predominant should be noticed and then back to the breathing as the primary object. We'll sit for about half an hour. Intending to open the eyes, opening the eyes. Intending to shift position, shifting position. interesting space that sometimes comes along where I'll be in and outing verbally and somehow it gets on automatic and then suddenly when this thoughts and I mean it's a whole bunch of things. One one cue to the fact that that's beginning to happen <coughs> is if you're in and outing and you're saying in and the breath is coming out. Yeah. You'll know that you know so as soon as that happens it's sort of a, a signal that the mindfulness has not been, you know, it's missed something. So just then make a, a conscious effort to get back, you know, with what's happening. The words uh, shouldn't get too involved in the words, right? The, the primary emphasis is on the experience of the breath. And the words are merely an aid, you know, to keep the mind on the object. But don't... Uh, in other words, sometimes it goes on automatic and the mind is sort of just going with that and not really paying attention to the breath at all. And that's and not so useful. thoughts in the background, right. too. Right. It's amazing how many different things can be going on at the same time. It's one after the other. Could it be two levels, Joe? Uh, not one after the other? Well, consciousness uh, has a single object. No, but the functioning, there can be two levels of functioning. The consciousness is in one place, and the uh, other thing is on automatic. It would seem like doing a mantra. It would seem that there was no primary consciousness at that time. It's almost like the middle state. Yeah, but what it is, is it's a continuity of consciousness arising and passing away. It's said 17 trillion times in an instant. So a question of whether it's one after the other or levels, at, at that level it does not really matter, you know. Like it's a very quick process, normally we're not picking up the, the arising and vanishing very quickly, right? So we see it all as sort of a, a hazy unit, whereas actually it's a, very, it's a very quick process and as the mindfulness gets sharper, you see the, the momentary arising and vanishing very quick of breath and thought and sensation and hearing one after the other very, very quickly. If you're concentrating on one thing and that brings you um, into a 
Samadhi just means concentration, and there are different levels of it. different states, you know, of different balance of factors. And sometimes what happens is that the concentration becomes much stronger than the mindfulness. And that's called sinking mind. The mind sinks into the object. It's staying one-pointed, but there's not real awareness of what the object is. And that's sort of like a dreamlike state. The concentration then is out of balance with the mindfulness. So at that time you have to strengthen the mindfulness factor and a, a way to do that is by making a mental note of what the object is just by way of uh, bringing back to mind the present object rather than just sinking into it, right? So they have to be in balance, those two. Is there any way that you can um, differentiate between a deep state where the concentration is so deep that you're not aware of the object and sleep? Is there a way to differentiate those two states? Can you say that again? Yeah. Um, when, you're in, when you're concentrating, where the concentration is, is not in balance with the mindfulness, and you have a sinking... It's more like a dream state. All right. Well, if you're in a dream state, is there... What's the difference? How do you know that you're in this dream state or if you're just sleeping? Somehow, I'm just not hearing the question, you know. In other words, in that state of mind, the mind is getting into a... It's getting into a place where the mind is just sinking into the object. There's not awareness of what the object is, right? It's not... It's similar to a dreamlike state, right? It's not a state, for example, similar to deep sleep, right? Like in dreaming, there's, there's some awareness. There's, uh, it's like that, half, that halfway place. You know, there can be some degree of knowing that something's, that something's going on, but not that clear, that clear mindfulness of the object. And that happens often in meditating. You just, you sort of sink into this very relaxed place because the, the mind is staying one-pointed, right? But not very clearly aware. So there's a great similarity there. Does that...? Not really. I mean, I know, I, I've experienced that, but I don't right. know sometimes the awareness, even though it's not clear, that is also in stages, and sometimes there's no awareness. Right. And in other words, for example, if you're getting caught up in a thought and unaware that you're thinking? No. When there is no thought. Right and you're just in a state where there is no awareness. You're not aware that there's no awareness. There's just no awareness. <laughs> is there knowing of, like, no, no, no particularly defined object? Maybe you're sleeping. <laughs> does the body stay erect, or does it fall over? Or what's happening? Sometimes it stays erect, and sometimes it falls over. 
say generally, like there are two there are two levels of consciousness. There's there's what's called active consciousness and subconscious mind. Not in the sense of Western psychology, but in the sense of a life continuum consciousness. Okay, that's what's experienced in a state of deep sleep. Right, this this subconscious process. Even in the waking state, there are many of those moments. In between every moment of seeing and hearing, there are many of these subconscious minds. And all day long, there are many of them. When the mind is not very uh, well-trained, there are more subconscious minds. Right? A highly developed mind, trained in mindfulness, right? there are less of them. So when we're sitting, very often a lot of these subconscious minds arise. We're not so right with the object moment to moment, right? The subconscious mind does not have the power to keep the body erect. And that's why when you're sitting, sometimes you, you just feel that you've, you've fallen over, right? That's because at the, during those moments, it's the subconscious mind in which we're not aware of the object at all, just as in deep sleep, right? Maybe that's, that's part of what's happening. What if you were, um, I don't know, the idea of thinking, the sensation of thinking, the sensation of falling, is that the same thing, falling in with yourself or with the object? Is that, I don't know if that is. Um, yeah, it could be. Yeah. Okay. So, if that's the case, that if you're aware, the cognizant of that falling, right. is that a good place to be meditating on, or should you just try to get back to No, that's a. The mindfulness of it itself will make the mind alert again. Right? It happens because the mind, there's an imbalance there between the samadhi and the mindfulness. So if you are mindful that it's happening, right, in that mindfulness that fact is strengthened, so again it comes back into balance. So in, in that falling it's imbalanced. Right, right. right. The whole, the whole meditation path is this balancing act of the factors of enlightenment. And we're gonna, there's going to be a talk just on the seven factors of enlightenment. You know, how, how they have to be in balance. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, the attitudes about progressing in meditation? I find myself, if I, I find myself vacillating with that, saying, oh, I'm getting better. And, and then, that it's a big hindrance. It's a judgment. Right. The only thing to do is to be right in the present moment, to be experiencing what's happening. And the Dharma unfolds by itself. I, I've mentioned several times this, this saying by Fritz Perls about don't push the river, it flows by itself. Hmm. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to do anything to make things happen, right? It all flows on, it, it unfolds. All we have to do is stay mindful in the moment. And you don't suggest any kind of comparing it's a, If you're comparing, then you should be mindful that the mind is comparing, right? not, not identifying with it. Because all of that kind of comparing and judgment revolves about the concept of I, right? which is just, it's strengthening, strengthening that obstacle. So it's just, it's just being with what's happening, not, not identifying with anything, not judging, not comparing. And then it all, it just, you know, it's like when you, when you have a, a carpet rolled up and you give it a push and it just, 
it just unfolds. It's the same way with the Dharma. We, you stay mindful, and it just all unfolds by itself. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.